Welcome to Success in Medicine. I'm Dr. Samir Desai. In the recent podcast, Lessons from Medical School in China, I interviewed Dr. Hassan Raza about his experiences as a medical student in China after having grown up in New York City. Before leaving for China, Hassan did not speak a single word of Mandarin and was not particularly fond of Chinese food. Attending medical school in China ended up being an eye-opening and transformative experience for Hassan. And Hassan told us about how the lessons he learned has impacted the care that he provides patients here in the U.S. with a focus on Chinese Americans. In today's podcast, I am pleased to have Hassan again on the show for part two of Lessons for Medical School in China. If you haven't listened to part one of our Q&A, I encourage you to do so in the podcast archives at iTunes, Google Play, or our website, thesuccessfulmatch.com. Hassan, I wanted to thank you again for joining us at the Success in Medicine podcast. I remember our first conversation, Lessons from Medical School in China, Part 1, which was very eye-opening, and we learned so much from your experiences. And in today's podcast, Lessons from Medical School in China, Part 2, we're going to uh, start off with where we left off. And uh, today, we're going to be going deeper into some very, very important topics, things like coining and cupping and acupuncture and end-of-life issues with respect to Chinese Americans. So let's go ahead and get started. You're someone who has taken care of many Chinese patients, both in China and here in the U.S. How do Chinese Americans view physicians in the United States? Well, I've noticed that many patients in China, they have a hard time connecting with their physicians. It's not that the physicians don't care in China. They actually care very deeply for their patients. But it's just simply difficult to meet the needs of the patients in China due to the sheer amount, sheer number of patients that need to be seen in the same amount of time compared to here in the U.S. As you, Dr. Desai, and our listeners may know, that the current Chinese population is about 1.37 billion people compared to the U.S., which is only 321.4 million in comparison. So you can kind of see the difference over there. For example, in one day of outpatient care in China, I see at least 100 patients just by myself. While here in the U.S., I would only see about a fraction of that number in the same time frame, let's say around 20 to 30 by myself. And um, longer visits in the U.S. can obviously help better establish the doctor-patient relationship. That's why I think that Chinese Americans, they tend to have more positive experiences with doctors here in the U.S. compared to China. We talk about the importance of setting the stage for a positive encounter when we first meet a patient. Do you have any specific recommendations for physicians when first meeting a patient of Chinese descent? Well, after walking in the door, I think the main focus should be on the proper pronunciation of the patient's name. Like when it comes to pronouncing a patient's name properly, it's always hard to do so for non-Chinese speaking physicians to pronounce Chinese patients' names. I understand that. And pronunciation of the name may actually be considered a small thing, but actually in my opinion, starting off by pronouncing the patient's name in the correct way with the correct pronunciation, the correct order, meaning the last name comes first, or the surname first, and then the first name afterward, doing that can actually lead to a nice start of a great doctor-patient relationship and an encounter. Or 
at the very least, try to ask the patient to teach you the correct pronunciation. Um, this will also make the two of you laugh as you get it wrong a few times and he's going to teach you again and again. And this is also a great way to kickstart the uh, doctor-patient relationship. We know that uh, Chinese Americans use coining and cupping to treat symptoms of minor illnesses. Can you tell us what coining and cupping are and why patients utilize such practices? Sure, Dr. Desai. So cupping, which in Chinese is called ba guang fa, it's an ancient technique in traditional Chinese medicine, or TCM, which is what I'm going to refer to it now from now on. And it's still widely practiced today. So basically, you take multiple cups, you apply it to the skin through very specific techniques, and the pressure in the cups are reduced, usually with heat. So that's why there's a little fire, you have to put a little fire in there. So when the pressure in the cups are reduced, and the skin and the superficial muscle layer is drawn into and held into the cup, like a kind of like a squid tentacle kind of thing, like a suction cup, it's usually done on fleshy surfaces of the skin, like the back. So if you ever see a Chinese-American patient uh, with some circular ecchymosis on his or her back, don't be surprised because it's most likely due to cupping. And the point of cupping, as preached in TCM, is that it's supposed to bring out the bad chi and the negative energies. And this whole bad chi and negative energies is a large basis of TCM philosophy because they want to maintain the good and the bad chi in the body. Uh, kind of like the yin and yang kind of thing, like good and bad, dark and evil kind of thing. So they're trying to maintain that balance, and they want to bring out as much negative energy as they can using this cupping method. And it, the main use of cupping is to relieve pain. And it can also be used in some respiratory disorders like chronic cough, bronchitis, and even some GI disorders. Now, as for coining, which in Chinese is called gua sha, which literally means scraping disease. It is done for that very purpose, to scrape the skin with a flat board-like object, and it, it induces minor bruises, which is said to treat similar conditions as for cupping. Now, of course, I personally can't recommend on its... I can't, I'm sorry, I can't comment on its efficacy and safety. And as a Western practicing physician, I can't recommend these treatments without first trying Western therapy. Despite this, I've noticed many patients still insist on utilizing these practices over Western medicine. Now, why is this so? I think a lot of it has to do with two reasons. One of them being simply that Chinese patients, especially the older ones, they'll always believe in their own culture and their heritage. Um, which includes TCM as an effective therapy for a wide variety of milder, condition, milder conditions like back pain and even more severe conditions such as cancer. They tend to be very adamant about um, sticking to their own culture and heritage. That's one reason. And another reason why I think this is so is it could simply be due to the somewhat robotic, procedural, and non-intimate nature of Western medicine. Now, I'm not saying that that's what Western medicine is like, but that some patients may actually perceive it to be that way. Now, some patients that opt for a TCM over Western medicine feel that Western practitioners are just following simple protocols, like one, two, three, you know, without even putting much thought into their treatment. My personal experience with these patients is to try to first establish a good doctor-patient relationship. After exploring the minds of my patients who do seek out these practices, I've been successful in trying to convince them to incorporate TCM into the Western medical therapy as an adjunct rather than completely abandoning the Western medicine in favor for TCM. 
I personally believe this is the correct way for patients to take on PCM, as research has shown patients improving with PCM, regardless of how foreign it may sound to some Western physicians. Some conditions where PCM has been shown to help in that research that I mentioned are fibromyalgia, migraines, back pain, and even depression. Well, Hassan, thank you very much for that um, introduction to TCM. What else should physicians know about coining and cupping? Uh, well, physicians should know that cupping and coining are just two, just two of the many practices involved in TCM, and that they're only scratching the surface of the world of TCM. The world of TCM is very, very large, and I'm by far no expert in TCM, but I do know that it, along with the patient's values, should be highly respected at all times if the maintenance of a good doctor-patient relationship is the goal of the physician. I think Western physicians should be at least familiar with the physical signs of a patient who has undergone coining and cupping and should not be alarmed too much if they do see those circular ecchymoses that I mentioned or those linear ecchymoses from, from uh, cupping. And um, another thing that they shouldn't be too, uh, too alarmed to hear is if the patient starts to describe their symptoms as feelings of heat and cold in their body. These are also TCM kind of philosophy-like descriptions of their symptoms. And I also think that Western physicians shouldn't give a condemning tone when talking about the practice to the patient. Well, that's really great advice, Hassan. I want to ask you, what are some other traditional therapies Chinese Americans may try? Um, there are many traditional therapies in TCM that Chinese Americans may try. Just to name a few, there's acupuncture, which most people have heard of, and there's moxibustion. Together, these two are called zhenjiu. And acupuncture, as most people know, is a technique using acupuncture needles at different meridian points on the body. These meridian points are also called eight wind points, or pa feng shui in Chinese, which is actually a transliteration of the term. Pa means eight, feng means wind, and shui means point or acupuncture point. This practice, just like with all TCM, is meant to balance the positive and negative energies in the body and release the bad qi that I talked about earlier. The same goes for moxibustion, which involves using dried plant materials called uh, moxa. In Chinese, it's called airong. And these moxa plants uh, are burned on or very close to the surface of the skin. Now, cupping and moxibustion specifically are the two TCM techniques that I was actually able to try plenty of times on patients during my TCM rotation in China. And yes, we had a TCM rotation, and it was quite unique and actually initially a horrifying experience for me, but it was a great experience in order to relate to my patients today. And I can tell them that, look, I realize I'm familiar with some of your culture and your traditions, and I've even done it myself, and they're usually delighted to hear that. So, Hassan, for the providers, for the providers here in the U.S., how can they become more knowledgeable about traditional practices used by Chinese Americans? So some of our listeners may be thinking that they need to read endless books on TCM or these ancient-looking books just to learn more, but actually, you'll be surprised at how much you can learn from your patients directly. Um, one of my favorite books I've read is called How to Win Friends and Influence People, written by Dale Carnegie. And in that book, Dale talks about how you, if you show genuine interest and appreciation in the topics that other people are interested in, you're much, much more likely to gain their interest, their appreciation, and their trust in return. So if you show interest in the patient's 
use of TCM, for example, and the desire to use TCM, they'll teach you and they'll be delighted to do so. And after doing that, as a bonus, they're going to they're gonna give you their appreciation and their trust. And this is, uh, this is all very useful information that's going to help you learn more about TCM, and it's also going to improve on your relationship and build a stronger rapport with the patient. And of course, in addition, providers can also research online, read about these practices in their spare time, and this can really go a long way when it comes to showing patients you care about them and you really are interested in what they are interested in, too. Chinese Americans are often reluctant or hesitant to tell their physicians about their use of Asian medicine. Uh, Hassan, I want to share with you uh, the results of one study. So in this study, researchers had Chinese Americans share their experiences with physicians in the U.S. And I want to tell you about what one Chinese woman said, and I quote, I told the doctor I am taking some angelica and ginseng. Do you think it is okay? The doctor said, I don't know Chinese medicine. You should be responsible for the results if you take them. After that, I did not dare mention Chinese medicine again. What can physicians here in the U.S. do to make Chinese Americans more comfortable in sharing and discussing their use of Asian medicine? Well, Dr. Desai, working in the Working in primary care for the past nearly three years now, I've come to highly treasure the doctor-patient relationship, which I believe primary care thrives off of. Acts in which a physician scolds a patient, as in the example you gave, only leads to a loss of trust between the physician and the patient. When it comes to a PCM, a Western practitioner should not show a complete lack of respect for a patient's desire to seek PCM. The first question a physician should do is attempt to find out why. Why is the patient seeking out alternative forms of medicine? If you do that, I think this can help clear any misunderstandings the patient may have regarding their current treatment and will subsequently result in a Chinese-American patient to be more comfortable explaining why they're doing what they're doing and why they're seeking what they're seeking. This ultimately results in a better doctor-patient relationship and in turn improves compliance to the therapy which you as a physician initially prescribed. I think a physician can have a more open mind to different ideas and not limit their mind to what they're used to. For me, going to a foreign country to study medicine really broadened my outlook on life and on foreign ideas, all of which I'm not used to. I try to be very open to any ideas and suggestions that patients offer to me. And I encourage them to tell me, please, tell me as much as you want about this. I'd like to learn. I want to talk to you now about communication between Chinese-American patients and their physicians. Many Chinese-American patients would rather communicate their medical issues or problems in their native language. So if the provider is unable to speak their language, an interpreter is often involved. And it's not uncommon for the interpreter to be a child or another relative. What are some problems that may be encountered with using a relative as an interpreter? One problem with using a child or another relative as an interpreter is that sometimes information can be changed or withheld when that occurs. The reasons for this to occur are plenty, some of which include Let's say, one, the child or the relative is maybe embarrassed to mention specific problems occurring with the patient, or two, the child or relative is trying to hurry up with the encounter as they have places to go, 
or they're being annoyed or they want to limit the, so they end up limiting the context of the complaint. Or simply the fact that family members may just be unfamiliar with their medical terminology and have a general lack of training in translation. Sometimes patients are also reluctant to disclose sensitive information about their problems, particularly when their children or other family members are around, or if the physician treating them does not speak their native language. They might just think, oh, he doesn't speak my language, so, you know, um, I'm not even going to bother, or something like that. Um, the most prominent condition I've noticed throughout my experiences is diagnosing and treating depression. Even when I'm speaking to a patient who speaks English fluently, so in that case there wouldn't be a need for an interpreter, I almost never want to have any other individuals in the room when I'm speaking to the patient whom I suspect may be suffering from depression. But when translation is necessary, this becomes very difficult when a middleman is necessary, especially if that middleman is a relative of the patient. I've noticed that relatives sometimes tend to become a little defensive when speaking about emotional issues of the patient as if that relative is being judged or blamed for that patient's emotional issues. I believe that this is not the ideal situation when working with such a condition, making the need for a provider to speak the patient's native tongue, uh, uh, to speak in the, native, in the patient's native tongue to be all the more necessary. I so strongly believe this to be true that if I see a patient who may be depressed and I don't speak their language, I'm going to try my best to find a physician who actually does speak that language. Of course, if I can't, I'm going to do my best, the best that I can, but at the very least, I'll use an interpreter who has no personal relation to the patient. I want to talk to you now about an interesting patient experience you had in China that really opened your eyes to the roles adult children in China may assume with respect to the health of their parents. Okay, so... My last year of medical school was my internship, which is basically the clinical rotations in all the departments. And during my cardiothoracic surgery rotation, which was actually my first rotation, I encountered a patient who had recently suffered from an aortic dissection. While at the bedside of the patient, I began speaking to the resident about her condition in Chinese. And he bumped my elbow really quickly and said to me in English not to talk about the patient's condition, not to say the complete truth out loud in front of the patient, as her children forbid us physicians from disclosing everything to the patient. That was actually the first time I learned about the roles of adult children in China regarding their parents' health, and I witnessed numerous similar events throughout my internship. Have you encountered a similar situation in the U.S.? Yes, actually, I did encounter another similar situation, but it wasn't as severe. While working in primary care clinic over here, I encountered an 80-year-old elderly female who came in with one of her daughters. And the patient presented for an annual physical. And when I tried to talk to the patient about healthcare proxies and advanced care planning, which is what we normally do for a patient of that age over here, the daughter immediately interrupted me and told me that she's going to be the healthcare proxy and everything regarding her condition should be discussed only with her or one of the sisters. And she was so adamant about this that she even gave me a list of all the names of the sisters and their phone numbers and in the exact order of who to call, who's most available, who's least available. She justified her actions by saying that she's too old and telling her too much will only make her life worse. So please, doctor, let us take care of it. Now, of course, I proceeded to educate her on the system of healthcare in the U.S. and how it 
how important it is for a patient to have a say in what his or her wishes are when it comes to end-of-life care discussion. I feel this is very important, and so does the healthcare system over here. And in the just like in the previous podcast, when I talked about the patient who didn't want to undergo the screening test and the vaccinations and the way I connected with them, I told, I also feel like I also connected with her. So I told her about all of the Chinese beliefs and I was slowly able to make her understand. I feel like my knowledge of this when it comes to Chinese culture really allowed me to succeed in this encounter with the patient's daughter. And finally, allowing me to speak openly with the patient regarding end-of-life care discussion in the end. And my, uh, the daughter was actually supporting me pretty well towards the end of the encounter. So clearly, uh, discussing end-of-life issues uh, can be very, very challenging with uh, Chinese-American patients. So um, how else should physicians proceed in this area? Well, I've seen all sorts of different reactions when I bring up discussion of -of end-of-life care. Now, I've seen a large range of reactions. So I've seen patients who discuss the topic very openly. And I've also seen patients who are very, very hesitant to talk about it. And that broader range. And then there's some patients in the middle. Now, after asking the patients that are hesitant, I've learned that there are a wide variety of reasons why a patient may be hesitant to talk about this. One reason is that patients are worried that if they talk about the possibility of something bad happening to them, they feel that it may occur soon. Personal beliefs such as religion or superstition may contribute to these feelings, but I believe it's the physician's job to reassure patients that the discussion is for their own sake and for their family's sake as well. Another reason that I noticed more specific to Chinese Americans is that as many elderly Chinese patients, uh, Chinese American patients' wishes are mostly largely dominated by their children's wishes, like I mentioned above. Um, when an elderly Chinese American patient gets past a certain age, their children tend to take over the health care of the patient, including end-of-life care discussions, and they just don't allow the patient to convey their wishes as smoothly. A perfect example just being the one I mentioned uh, earlier here when I encountered her in the U.S. And now, how should patients proceed in discussing the end-of-life care? So I personally have a strong connection with this topic, as I've done numerous quality control quality control projects and research projects in the clinic that I'm working at right now. One of those projects regarding this very topic, discussion of -of end-of-life care. At the time, I did a retrospective study looking through many charts of patients, usually over 65 years old, and I pinpointed the level of compliance written on providers' charts for discussing end-of-life care with patients. In the end, I noticed a decreased compliance regarding documentations of advanced care directive discussion and a decreased compliance of the patient returning a healthcare proxy form completed in, the, in future visits. Afterward, I took it upon myself to improve on this. I researched the possible causes of why providers were not discussing it with the patient. Some reasons included the lack of time, it's too inconvenient, or some other issues with the patient. One of the most common reasons were due to the fact that there was a whole large packet of information regarding healthcare proxies and advanced care um advanced care directives, and it was just too long and tiresome for patients to go through and, you know, read all of it and understand all of it and then sign it in the end, as well as the fact that the physical exam template in the EMR, it wasn't very, very concise and it didn't include an efficient way to document the results of the discussion. So I made a summary 
in order to fix this, I made a summary with bullet points of the packet. I read through the packet. I made a nice little summary with bullet points in Chinese and Spanish and, of course, in English, too. And I also made a much easier-to-use template in the EMR system, which allowed providers to, to uh, discuss the end-of-life care a lot easier and document it a lot easily. Now, fixing these two issues, I feel it helped make, make it easier for providers and patients and helped improve the compliance of end-of-life care discussion in our office. Now, this is just one way that providers can make the approach of discussion regarding this topic a bit easier, as well as to simply be a bit more patient when talking about this topic, making sure not to rush with the patient, and this way the patient will understand more clearly and, and realize the importance of the discussion. A provider should be more open to a wide variety of patients' beliefs. Some beliefs and attitudes I mentioned above may change as immigrants uh, adjust and adapt to Western society, but it's the physician's job to initiate the conversation and keep their eyes and ears open, remain open to many different ideas. Well, that's all very, very informative. And um, Hassan, I want to ask you, do you have any final thoughts or recommendations for our listeners? Well, to our listeners, I would say that nobody should feel limited to certain places or limited to certain ideas set by society or even those close to them. I, for example, I stepped out of my boundaries and I attended a school in a location completely foreign to me with a totally new language and a culture. Yet I was still able to become a competent physician who can provide quality care to patients in need. I highly recommend everyone to at least learn one other language other than English. Now, it may seem difficult, but I feel like it's going to be very useful. If you do learn the extra language, you may be more useful in the community when it comes to communicating with patients that can't speak English. In fact, for myself, my next language goal will be to learn Spanish, as that is another language and another culture that interests me greatly, and I would greatly improve the quality of care that I can give as a physician. So the bottom line is always be prepared to listen to the patient. And if you can understand their language and their culture on top of that, that would be even better. Don't be afraid to dive into the culture of others that may even differ greatly from your own. You never know. It may even change your entire outlook on medicine or even greater, your life. Well, thanks so much, Hassan, for this excellent discussion. And uh, I want to thank you for joining us. It was my pleasure, Dr. Desai. Our entire conversation with Hassan in Part 1 and 2 of Lessons from Medical School in China is a reminder that we live in a diverse and multicultural society. To be effective in what we do as physicians and to deliver the sensitive and informed care that our patients expect, we must make cultural competence a focus of our everyday practice. If we can succeed in doing so, our patients will be much more satisfied with our care and they'll be more likely to follow through on our treatment recommendations. The end result? Better outcomes. After all, that's what we're all striving for, isn't it? In future episodes, we'll have opportunities to revisit cultural competence in medicine. Until next time, I'm Dr. Samir Desai.